Amen, amen. What an amazing time of worship this morning as we prepare uh, continually to receive from the Lord His amazing word by the grace of the gospel and the revelation that the Spirit gives to us this morning. Let us pray as we open up His word this morning. Lord, as we come during this time now of uh, hearing from Your word, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, every aspect of our soul would uh, receive in faith uh, what You are going to reveal to us today. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit of God that reveals truth, and the same Spirit uh, gives us desire and power to live in those truths. And so, Lord, we ask that you meet us where we are this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would work a work of grace in our life. Uh, Lord, that we would not leave uh, the same way that we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to continue our series walking through this amazing chapter. We're going to specifically be in verses 33 through 40 this morning. Uh, We are in our fifth uh, message in our teaching series, uh, His Word, My Anchor. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath uh, the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. Please open up that Bible to page 569, 569. Uh, This amazing chapter, this long chapter of 176 verses is uh, broken into 22 different stanzas, each stanza uh, incorporated eight verses each. Uh, It's a poem that the psalmist is writing. Uh, We don't know exactly who the psalmist is. Uh, There is speculation on who it may be, but we do know that the central focus of this particular chapter is the importance of God's word. And what's amazing about the way this uh, particular chapter is broken in in those 22 different stanzas is each stanza is uh, identified by one of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse in that particular stanza is also uh, begins with that same letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so this morning, as we look at the image of what this paragraph would look like in the original language, in the Hebrew language, we are looking at the Hebrew letter, hey, and so uh, if you look at the scripture there, each verse in that particular Uh, stanza begins with the same Hebrew letter, again, reading from right to left, not left to right, like the English language. The Hebrew letter, uh, hey, is often illustrated with a window, a window. I don't know about you, but I love to fly. I love to fly in an airplane, and I love to fly in an airplane with the window seat. I want to be able to be right there when they crank up those engines. I want to see the flaps go fully out and fully in, right? Those are important for taking off, and they're very important for landing as well. So I want to make sure that they're working. I also want to make sure that as we're flying, I want, to, I want to see everything. I want to see how fast we're going. I want to see us get up in the air. I want to be able to hit those tight turns and see what's next. I want to see the landscape of the terrain that we're flying over. Uh, I want to get above the clouds, and the clouds so lush and so white that you just feel like you can step out of the plane and, and walk on them. Don't do that because it won't happen. But, but I love a window seat. Uh, now that we have children and we fly sometimes, I know I'm not ever going to get the window seat if they're with us because one of the children uh, love to sit by the window. But what the window seat does is it gives us a new perspective. It gives us a different perspective of what's around. And the picture here is this Hebrew letter, hey, is, is a picture of a window. And here is the psalmist. The psalmist is looking out at life. With all of its bumps, with all of its bruises, with all of the joys and the victories and all those things. And what he receives from the Lord is divine perspective on life. And praise be to God, by his grace, he does give us divine perspective on life. And what is the perspective that he receives? Verses 33 through 40 says like this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. 
Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness gives me life. Everything about this passage is focused on the Lord. Your statutes, your law, your commandments, your testimonies, your ways, your servant, your promise, your rules, your precepts, your righteousness. And what amazes me about this particular stanza is not just the fact that each verse in this particular stanza begins with the same Hebrew letter, but out of the eight verses here, seven of them, the first seven verses, begin with the same type of command. Uh, The command tense here is very, very important. It's it's a causal command, meaning the, the psalmist is commanding God to do something. Now, that's pretty brave, right? Normally in Scripture, it's God commanding us to do something. But in this particular stanza, in this part of the chapter, it's the psalmist commanding God to do something. And the verb tense that he uses for those commands is causal, meaning the psalmist is saying, Lord, if you do not do this, it's not going to happen. And here is the psalmist pouring his heart before the Lord with that perspective, that divine perspective that God has given him by grace, of his life, and saying, Lord, I command you to do these things, because if you don't, it's not going to happen. And what is it that he commands the Lord to do? He commands the Lord to teach me. He says, teach me, that first verse there in 33, he says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. The word teach here in the Hebrew language speaks of something that is thrown in order to hit a mark, right? And what's interesting is uh, the word sin in the New Testament oftentimes is communicated in missing the mark, right? So here is the psalmist, and he's saying, Lord, teach me, cause me to learn from you so that I can hit the mark of your will and your ways in my life. In other words, the psalmist is fully aware that he entered into this life Missing the mark over and over and over again, right? We fall short of the glory of God. And so he says, Lord, cause me, teach me, right? Cause me to learn from you. You know, we don't have to ask the Lord to teach us how to sin, right? But we do need to ask the Lord to cause us how to learn so that we can live rightly. So this divine teacher is, the psalmist is pleading, divine teacher, give me divine instruction and he praise be to God God is gracious and he is good he's going to give us that the psalmist writes in Psalm 25 verse 8 good and upright is the Lord therefore he instructs sinners in the way and in Psalm 119 did you notice the reason why the psalmist wanted to be taught by the Lord he says teach me your ways and I will keep it to the end the psalmist desire is that not just part of his life, but the whole of his life, all the way up into his last breath, is I want to obey your word. I want to honor you. Not just when I'm at church. Not just when I'm underneath uh, the responsibility and the authority of my mom and dad. Not that I just want to pick and choose where I'm going to allow you to teach me. I want the whole of my life 
to be under your teaching. Humble obedience to the Lord. Psalm 25 verse 9 says this, He leads, the Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And here the psalmist is acknowledging, I want to be a humble learner underneath your leadership. Cause me to learn from you. Teach me. And that begs a question, are you teachable today? And the season of life that you find yourself, this is, this is not an age question, right? This is a heart question. Are you, are you asking the Lord, commanding the Lord, cause me to learn from you. Teach me your ways. Lord, cause me to be teachable. Second thing that the psalmist says is give me understanding. Give me understanding. Verse 34, the scripture says, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. The word understanding here is, talks about wisdom or discernment. He wants to be able to evaluate the circumstances in his life and rightly apply the word of God in those specific circumstances. He wants to apply God's truth. And the only way that we can apply God's truth is if God gives us what? Gives us understanding. Uh, let me give you a, a human example, right? The Pythagorean theorem. I don't know why geometry keeps coming up. Probably because one of our daughters has taken geometry and it's been a lot of work on both sides, right? But the Pythagorean theorem, listen to what the definition of the Pythagorean theorem is. In a right angle triangle, the square of the length of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares of the lengths of the other two sides. Man, that makes perfect sense, right? You lost me at hello, right? But, But I can understand A squared plus B squared equals C squared a little bit better, right? But how I really understand it is when you're building a wall. And you want to make sure that wall is square. You want to make sure it's a 90-degree angle. How do you determine that? If you don't have an angle finder, you measure one wall three foot out. You measure the other wall four foot out. And the distance between those two marks, the hypotenuse, is five feet. If you do three foot out, four foot out, the, the distance in between should be five feet. Now I can understand the importance of the Pythagorean theorem. That's as far as I go with that. But that's what the scripture is teaching us. The psalmist has a desire not just to be taught, but to understand. He wants to have spiritual discernment. And it's not just about right and wrong. It's about good and best, right? There's going to be a variety of choices that are laid before you, laid before your family. And it's not always a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of what's good and what is best. And so you're seeking discernment. You're seeking understanding from the Lord. Now, why does the psalmist want divine understanding? He says that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. So he's not asking the Lord to teach him and give him understanding so he can wow the crowds with what he knows, right? He's not hanging his diploma on the wall so that everybody can just be impressed with him. No, he wants the Lord to teach him and grant him understanding so that he can observe the law with his whole heart. That means without reservation, without partiality. It's not a buffet style of life. He wants his whole life, every part of his life, to honor the Lord. How many of us need wisdom today? I mean, you're, you're debating or peeling out layers of decisions that need to be made. Do, do you need wisdom today? Praise be to God. He gives us wisdom. He is gracious and good to give it to you. And and the book of James, in the immediate context, is the the context of trials, right? And oftentimes, trials do bring us to a place, Lord, I need to understand. 
what it is that you want me to do. And so James writes this in uh, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. The scripture says, if any of you lacks wisdom, so he's reminding us, you don't have it all figured out, right? Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, and the word lacks there is important because it talks about something that is inferior. In other words, our thoughts are not God's thoughts, right? Our ways are not his ways, right? Uh, he is so far more supreme than us. And, and those who lack wisdom, the scripture says, let him ask God. And the, the, the verb tense there for ask is keep on asking, right? Keep on asking God who gives generously without hesitation. The scripture goes on to say, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That, that word there, reproach, the, the fact that, that the Lord graciously gives us his wisdom even when we don't deserve it, right? The Lord isn't saying, didn't you just ask about this yesterday? He's not throwing our past up into our face and say, you should have known better by now. He doesn't do that. He gives to us generously. The word you need, you come, and you receive. Man, what beautiful grace in the scripture. Verse 6 tells us something as well. The scripture says, but let him ask in faith, that is, trusting with no doubting. Now, that's scary words there. How many of us doubt sometimes? The, the word for doubt means that you want to, there's parts of our lives that we want to rely on the Lord, but we still want to rely on ourselves, right? Any of, the, any of you experienced that before? That's the doubt he's referring to. And the beauty is that when those moments come, and they will, the scripture in no way is communicating that God's going to turn his back on us, right? Remember, he wants to give generously, right? He desires to give generously and graciously, right? That's not what the scripture is teaching us. So what is the scripture teaching us about the doubting? Well, it, it unpacks it. Uh, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, uh, there, there isn't a stability, right, in, in the thought pattern. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose, the word suppose there means to expect, so that person must not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. The word receive there talks about clinging to or holding to. So when you're in a place in your life where you're doubting, well, you're in a place in your life where you want to rely on the Lord, but you also want to rely on yourself. Don't expect to cling on or to hold on what God tells you, right? Because you're what? You're in a place of instability. You're, you're wanting to do two things at the same time, and you can't. The scripture says in verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right? That double-mindedness talks about double-souled. Again, wants to do one thing, but also wants to do another thing at the same time. And so the question is, where do you need understanding today? Where do you need wisdom from the Lord? The scripture says that he is gracious and good to give it to us. The question is, will we trust? Or are we going to try to do two different things at the same time? And that leads us in a place where we aren't going to fully receive cling on to what he has given to us. So the psalmist says, Lord, cause me to understand. Third, uh, direct my path. Direct my path. Verse 35, the psalmist says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The phrase lead me means to cause to tread or to march or to walk according to God's word. And the very fact that the psalmist is, is pleading with the Lord, commanding the Lord to cause me to walk and march in your ways means that, that he knows that he can't do it on his own. He knows that he needs divine empowerment. He needs something beyond himself. Only the Lord can cause him to march on the path that God has put before him. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says this in uh, chapter 10, verse 23. 
He says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks and direct to direct his steps. In other words, God's ways have never changed, right? They're the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? Praise God for that. So it's not the fact that God's ways change that causes the issue, right? Our inability to walk according to God's way isn't because he's not faithful to his ways. It's because we're not faithful to his ways, right? And so the psalmist is pleading with the Lord, Lord, give me divine empowerment to march on your path, to tread on your path. And here's the part that's interesting, is the psalmist desires to walk on the path, right? He says, I delight in it. The psalmist knows that his greatest joy is found in living in obedience to the word of God, but at the same time, he knows that it's only the grace of God that can overcome his wayward heart, right? And that's what he's saying. Lord, cause me to march according to your ways. Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24 says this, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. That phrase, headlong, uh, communicates in the Hebrew uh, to throw or to hurl or to cast away. And so the picture is someone who delights in living according to God's word, but also knows that he fails, right? And the beauty is that God does not hurl us away. He doesn't cast us away. What does he do? He restores us back to the right path, right? That's grace, right? Let me ask you this morning. Who's leading your life? Who's directing your steps? Who are you pleading to to cause you to march in the steps that are set before you? The psalmist says, Lord, cause me to stay on your path. The fourth thing that the psalmist uh, commands the Lord to do is bend my heart. Bend my heart. Verse 36 of the scripture says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The word incline means to bend or to aim. Uh, And the psalmist says, Lord, cause my heart to bend or to be aimed towards your promises. Now, why would he do this? Why would he say this? And the reality is our hearts are always bending somewhere, right? And here the psalmist gives us an honest evaluation of where his heart is being bent. He says, do not let it be bent to selfish gain. Uh, the, the, the words there, selfish gain, is the word covetousness, right? The word covetousness is a strong and oftentimes uncontrollable desire that we have for what others have, right? And, and oftentimes, we call these impulses, sometimes we'll call them indulgence of the flesh, and so here's the psalmist. The psalmist says, bend my heart away from the things that I crave apart from you, bend my heart back to the things that are true, the, the promises of God. And, and the Apostle Paul, uh, in great honesty, roots his sin in the sin of covetousness. In Romans chapter 7, Uh, The Apostle Paul says this. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. In other words, the law is not the issue. God's commands are not the issue. The, The sinful heart is the issue. He says, Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said. You shall not covet. So that's the 10th commandment. Verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, Paul says, 
when I understood the command, do not covet, it didn't keep me away from doing it. It actually did what? It breathed me to even do more coveting. That's what he's saying. He said, the law is good, but I cannot fulfill the law myself because the law exposes my sinfulness. He says, the more that I knew the truth, the more in my own strength I desired to get away from the truth. And so in this covetousness, he, he would bend, he would deceive, he would manipulate in order to satisfy the cravings of his heart, and that is the heart of covetousness. It exposes itself in things like greed and unrighteous anger and adultery. The scripture even says it's the, it's the heart of covetousness that leads to so many relational conflicts even in the church. Right? Again, James is writing to the early church and in James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 he says these words. He says, what causes quarrels? The word quarrels there uh, talks about those long-standing under the surface tensions, right? You, you don't like the person so you avoid the person, right? Those things nobody really knows but you, right? So those quarrels... Uh, the scripture says, and what causes fights? Those are those flare-ups, right? Those heated exchanges that we have sometimes. And what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, and that word passions is very, very important because it's where we get our English word hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy of life that's all about you, right? The, the, the central part of your life is about your desires, that you are fulfilled in life is that your passions are at war within you. So James says that your greatest issue is not the stuff that's happening on the outside of you. Your greatest issue is what's happening on the inside of you. He says you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when we actually go to the Lord and ask, what does he say in verse 3? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So there's things in this life that we covet. We don't go to the Lord, right? But there are times when we do go to the Lord and we're asking God to continually satisfy me, right? And the reason why we don't receive from the Lord is because well, our motives are wrong in what we're asking for. And that's where James says those things that we covet so often cause the quarrels and the fights among us, even in the midst of the body of Christ. So what's captivating your heart today? Is it greed? Is it lust? pornography, unrighteous anger, gossip. Listen, the only way to crucify those sins in your life is to have a greater affection for something else, right? In, in particular, someone else. If your affection isn't supremely on Jesus Christ, guess what? You will give way to all those things that you covet, right? And so what the psalmist is saying, Lord, bend my heart to a greater affection, Bend my heart to a greater affection because if you don't, my life will be full of all these things that I covet. The psalmist also says, protect my eyes, protect my eyes. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The word uh, turn here is, is the same root word that we get the word Passover. So this is a beautiful picture here. Lord, cause my eyes to pass over the things that are worthless, vain, and empty. So it's not about, Lord, I want to live my life with my eyes closed. No, it's, Lord, I want to live my life in such a way that I'm passing over the things of this world, and I'm focused on the things 
of the Lord. Cause my eyes to pass over the things that are empty and provide no nourishment to my soul. And we, we need to remember the role that eyes had when sin first entered the world, right? Genesis 3, verse 6, the scripture says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we see the eyes, right? Uh, Jesus says on the Sermon of the Mount that the eyes are a window to the soul, right? In other words, what you choose to focus on is ultimately what's going to lead your actions in life, right? And that's what the psalmist is teaching us. And think about King David as another example, right? King David, uh, in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, we see this. The scripture says, It happened late one afternoon uh, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he what? He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, couple things. One, David put himself in a bad environment to begin with. Right? David should have been out to war with, with all of his other uh, soldiers, but he chose to stay home. He's at, it's out at night. He goes to the, to the top of the roof, and, and he probably had an inclination that this lady was going to be out there uh, bathing, and the scripture says that he sees an, att- an attractive woman, and instead of uh, asking the Lord to turn his eyes away from that and turn his eyes to the things of the Lord, he tur- chooses to turn his eyes, fixated his eyes on the, uh, this particular woman. Uh, he focused on her. He fantasized about her. The scripture says in verse 3 of that same chapter that, that he later inquired about her. He sent for her, and the scripture says that he took her, right? In other words, he had relations with her, and she, she's a married woman, and chances are David was a, a married man. And so this is what David chose to do. And you see the depths that we're willing to go to when our eyes aren't protected by the Lord? I mean, you will go to great lengths to satisfy those desires, and that's exactly what David did. David failed to do what Job did. Job, in the midst of tremendous suffering, says something in Job uh, chapter 31. He says, I chose to make a covenant with my eyes. Man, that's a beautiful verse. He chose to make a covenant with his eyes. Lord, cause my eyes to be protected. And that's what the psalmist is pleading for. All those things that this world has to offer. Vanity. It's not the same word that's found in Ecclesiastes, but it is a word that expresses things that are empty, wasteful, uh, things that lead to tremendous idolatry. And the psalmist says, protect my eyes. Protect my eyes. And we live in a world that promotes vanity, right? And so every day we must plead for the Lord, command the Lord, Lord, if you do not protect my eyes, they will not be protected. Now, why did the psalmist want his eyes protected by the Lord? He says, because it's where life comes from. Life comes from you. And so every time my eyes aren't protected and I'm going to the things of the world, that's not where my true life is found. Life is only found in you. And that's important for us to recognize because 1 John 2 verse 16 says this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So the question is, what are you focused on today? What are you focused on today? Lord, cause my eyes to focus on you. The sixth thing that the psalmist says is, assure, assure me, assure me. Verse 38 Uh, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. The word confirm means to reestablish, to reaffirm, to carry something out. And notice uh, why the psalmist is uh, commanding the Lord to do this. 
he's asking the Lord uh, to reassure the promises that God has declared over him so that he can truly experience uh, life and that, that he will fear the Lord. In other words, Lord, I desire to live for you, but I need you to show me time and time and time again of your faithfulness. Lord, make me doubly sure of what you have said. Lord, make me fully convinced of your faithfulness. Lord, I have been shaken. Lord, I am walking through a time of struggle. I am weak. I am confused. I'm hurting. I'm grieving. Lord, I need you to reaffirm, to give me assurance of your faithfulness to me. Now, why would he do that? Again, that you may be feared. The psalmist's desire is a greater awe, a greater honor towards the Lord. Lord, confirm again what I already know about you. I mean, isn't that what we need? We, we need to, Lord, to reaffirm in our life what we already know to be true. And that's what the psalmist says. And that's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of Jesus. The scripture says that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The psalmist talks about promise. That's a word of covenant. It's covenantal language. That means that no matter what you're walking through, whatever your struggle is, God wants to reassure you with the finished work of Christ that all his promises are true. Where do you need reassurance today? The psalmist says, Lord, cause me to be assured in you. Seventh, strengthen me. Strengthen me. Verse 39. The psalmist says, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. The word reproach means uh, scorn or rebuke uh, or to be weighed down. Uh, so what is causing the psalmist uh, to feel this rebuke, this reproach, uh, this being weighed down? Uh, is it po- it's possible that the, the psalmist is feeling this way because he's being faithful to the word of God. We saw that in uh, verse 22 of the same chapter. But it's also possible that the psalmist is in a place where he is not uh, being obedient to the word of the Lord. And because he's not living in obedience to the Lord, it, it's, it's the weight of guilt and shame that is on him. And the scripture says, uh, I, I, need, I need your strength to overcome this weakness. So again, we don't know for sure if it's, if it's, if it's the rebuke of, of those who are uh, angry at the psalmist because he's living a life in honor of the Lord, or is it the psalmist himself that is experiencing this place of weakness because uh, he's living in dishonor to the Lord? We don't know, but here's what we do know, that grace, the grace of God meets us both times, right? It's the grace of God that meets us where we are in our weakness. The Apostle Paul would be a great example of this. Uh, the Apostle Paul pleaded three times that the Lord would remove uh, that thorn from his flesh, right? And what did the scripture say? The scripture says, my grace is sufficient. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10. Uh, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so that's where we go. We go to the grace of God in order to find strength in the midst of our weaknesses. So where do you need strength today? Where do you need strength today? Lord, cause me to be strengthened by you. And then the psalm, this particular stanza, closes with verse 40. 
And behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. This is the only verse in this particular stanza that doesn't have that command. It does not have that same command of cause. The psalmist says, you know, I long for. I have a deep desire for your ways in my life. Lord, I need you to teach me. I need you to give me understanding. I need you to direct my paths. I need you to bend my heart. I need you to protect my eyes. I need to get you to reassure me. I need you to give me strength. And where does this hope come from? In your righteousness, give me life. Where is this hope coming from? His hope is coming from the righteousness of the Lord. Where is our hope coming from today? Our hope is in Christ who is in me. Our hope is Christ in me. Today and every day, we should live with great expectation and anticipation that Christ will give you exactly what you need for the journey. I stand not in my righteousness, but I stand resolute in the righteousness of Christ. It's based on his character, not mine. I stand every day and in every way with the one who for my sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not my faithfulness, but his faithfulness. You and I every day need to live with an amazing hunger for a righteousness that is not our own. Why? Because we have no righteousness apart from Christ. Our only hope is him. Romans 7, 24 through 25, the Apostle Paul going through this great struggle between uh, the good that he knows, but the things that he does. And he says this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Victory can only come from the cross of Christ. Lord, cause me to be taught. Lord, cause me to understand. Lord, cause me to march on your path. Lord, cause me to, my heart to bend towards you. Lord, cause my eyes to pass over the things of this world. Lord, cause me to be reassured. Lord, cause me to be strengthened. In other words, the hope that my mind needs, the hope that my heart needs, the hope that my feet need, the hope that my eyes need, the hope that my emotions need is found where? In Christ Jesus who lives in me through his spirit. Christ in me. The hope of glory. The question is, do you believe this morning? Do you believe that the Lord can answer every single one of those commands? Lord, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. But Lord, I trust that you can, that you are able. You are able. So this morning, as we go to our time of response, which one of those do you find that the Lord is pressing on you this morning? What is it that you need to be taught? What is it that you need understanding? What is it that you need to be directed on the path that God has for you? What is it that you need in order to bend your heart, to focus your eyes, to, to bring about reassurance, to bring about strength? Where is it that there needs to be confession and repentance and renewed trust in the gospel because Christ truly is your only hope? As we have a time of continued worship through singing uh, to the Lord. The altar will be open for you. I would encourage you.